This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Something else I'm looking forward to finding out more about is the current exhibition at NGVA at Fed Square, uh, the National Gallery of Victoria. Uh, the exhibition is Gareth Sansom Transformer and is uh, looking at the career and the, the output uh, over 60 years of the Australian artist Gareth Sansom. Joining us to tell us more is Simon Maitman, Senior Curator of Contemporary Art at the NGV. Simon, good morning. Morning, Richard. Thanks for having me. Very great pleasure. So who is Gareth Sansom and why is this exhibition on? And also, how bloody difficult is his name to say? <laughs> I keep wanting to say Samson and, of course, then have to stop and correct myself every time. Yes, and Gareth's rather sensitive to the um, name being spelt incorrectly, which it tends to be when um, I've been sending various things out and they get rewritten. I've been hearing all about that. But um, Gareth has been a... Um, a kind of key figure within the Melbourne art world for some time. Uh, he is he came of age really in the 1960s and had a really, um, I guess, genre um, bending and provocative practice from very early on. In fact, the the oldest works in the exhibition um, carry many uh, hold in them many of the ways of working that he would continue to. Um, used throughout his career but he's also very well known and very influential as a as a teacher and um, as a pedagogue so he uh, was the head of painting at VCA from and then the dean of the art school from the late 70s through to the early 90s so he really did influence quite a um, number of generations of Australian artists so he has he's a larger than life figure um, in real life and his art is certainly uh, in the same vein provocative um, the paintings are large scale and the oldest painting in the show is about 53 years old and the newest was finished earlier this year and it really is a remarkable survey of consistency of effort and drive and vision throughout that time um, and I would argue that he's painting with um, you know a verve and a kind of um, a surety that uh, you know is at the top of his game the last 10 years have really been to my mind producing um, the best work he's produced in his career. Which is interesting because I've seen some survey exhibitions of uh, of artists practice where you can see that they have clearly peaked <laughs> at a certain time and sure. then later works perhaps lack the the intensity or the vigor or the clarity for example yes. so great to, to know that gareth is still very much at the top of his game for yeah. people who've not seen his work before and if you want to explore some of the images in the exhibition you can jump onto the ngv website as simon and i are talking ngv.vic.gov.au forward slash exhibition and uh, just take a look at the, the Gareth Sansom page. But there's a, a, a vivid colour palette. Kind of the, these kind of paintings yes. kind of pop off the off the page or pop off the canvas or, or the the gallery wall and references to uh, to the likes of Francis Bacon and and other artists, but also um, uh, very much an awareness of the the impact of collage as well. And he's incorporating, in fact, I think in the very the most recent painting, he's physically incorporating objects like Lou Reed's Transformer, the vinyl album, yes. into the work. It's his wife's album. She's thrilled about that. So. Um, <laughs> That's absolutely um, correct and he is well known to have adopted collage very early on at a time when few Australian artists were and he would um, 
as you say, place found objects or um, collage printed or f- photography elements in the painting frame, which was quite radical um, at the time in the 1960s especially. And he really became synonymous with the use of collage, so much so that in the 80s he stopped um, for the period of a year using it at all and just kind of dedicated himself um, while on residence at Melbourne University, artisan residence at McGeorge House in 1985. He produced a whole body of painting that didn't use any because he felt like he was too too associated with it. But thankfully he has gone back to using collage and I think it's one of the strongest elements um, and surprising elements in his work. Uh, you mentioned people like Francis Bacon, very influential early on in Gareth's career, although he um, did move on um, past his sort of admiration of, uh, of, um, of uh, Bacon and uh, looking more broadly um, at other artists and also bringing a lot of pop culture references into his um, work. So he, they often reference uh, films uh, such as The Shining or Psycho or um, uh, characters in the past like um, Jack the Ripper, for instance, uh, as a way to really stand in for sensations of fear or um, uh, questioning of faith with the, the um, use of the Seventh Seal, the Ingman Bergman film, quite often. Um, and through that, he sort of developed this personal iconography of signs and symbols that continue on throughout his whole career with these strange um, uses of, you know, the crucifix form or the star and these sorts of things. So they're quite, um, you know, they're unusual works because they do sit between a kind of abstraction and a figuration. They do feel narrative, but there's no real clear message to them. Um, And so the, the viewer is very much left kind of trying to find their own way through the works. And I think that's why an exhibition like this has been so well received so far it's still early days it only opened um, just under a week ago Um, but the responses have been um, some you know people who are very familiar with his work quite amazed at the show because seeing all these works on mass and there's over 130 in the show you start to get a sense of a bit more of what is going on and some of the structuring approaches he's taking to these to these um, chaotic scenes and and um, and as you say the color is especially the last twelve years incredibly um, intense and um, and I think that's also led to his sort of more recent successes in the market and in particular becoming quite popular in places like Brisbane um, this use of color which uh, was maybe a lot more muted and murky before that. Now the NGVs have- a fairly long association with Gareth Sansom mm. buying his uh, a, a work of his back in 1965 at a time when we perhaps think of Melbourne in general uh, and the NGV as being a little bit conservative, a little bit staid and old fashioned. I'm aware of the the shock in the in the the 50s and 60s that uh, modernism had on the city and yes. so forth. So the fact that the NGV was canny enough and open minded enough mm. to buy a work of his in 65 um, helps really break down some of those stereotypes. Yeah, it's true, although I wouldn't go so far as to say the organisation has been a long-term supporter of Gareth's. Um, In fact, I'm going to out Gareth here and tell a funny story about Gareth's house in Sorrento, which was designed by uh, John Wardle, the um, celebrated Melbourne architect. And um, Gareth had moaned to John over so many decades about the lack of support from the NGV that, in fact, um, John has designed uh, an archway that sits within the main living space of Gareth's house 
glass which is visible that mimics the archway above the water wall of the NGV. So every time Gareth hangs a work, if he's on the wall or enters the house and walks under the archway, he can feel like he's in the NGV, which I thought was a, um, a lovely kind of riposte to that. But it is true that there are key works in our collection and, um, and key works in... Uh, state galleries across the country and we've borrowed um, very, you know, borrowed heavily from interstate for this show. And um, I guess it speaks to that issue though also if someone has a career that lasts 60 years, it's very difficult for them to be supported in that kind of intense or or, um, buying their work in depth over long periods of time to the detriment of maybe looking at other artists and other art forms and that sort of thing. So there's always that conundrum, I think, for a collecting organisation. But um, that work you mentioned in particular, the work uh, he sees himself we bought in 1965, is an absolutely key work. Um, So it's really great to have that one. Now, something else that... um Sansom's work does is it references the city he lives in, the people of it as well. So um, uh, there's a reference to, is it Sweeney Reed in, mm. in one work, for example, a triptych? Yeah, tragic story actually. Um, so Sweeney Reed, um, you know, it was someone who was, uh, Gareth was a great supporter of and Sweeney was um, sort of transitioning into trying to um, maybe look for an opportunity to um, run a, a regional gallery um, as, a, as director and di- had no qualifications. Um, obviously grew up um, uh, around artists and famously, you know, the Heidi school, the Heidi artists and and um, was really, you know, incredibly talented um, thinker and cu- curator and, and, and artist himself. And um, Gareth sort of hatched a plan while head of the art school with B. Maddock, the famous um, Melbourne printmaker and artist and who was running the printmaking department to enrol Sweeney at VCA and to um, have him... Um, you know, graduate as, a, as an artist and thus be in a position to further his career. And while studying there, he called Gareth one night on a Friday night and said, oh, oh Gary, you know, when, what time is dinner tonight? And Gareth was said, oh, Sweeney, no dinner's, you're having dinner with us tomorrow. Sweeney said, oh, okay, sorry, sorry. And hung up the phone and um, unfortunately committed suicide later that night. And Gareth felt, you know, still feels, I think, very guilty about that, that missing that cry for help, and um, so there's this wonderful triptych that's in the um, in the collection of Queensland Art Gallery called Sweeney Agonistes, which relates also to um, the the text, the Milton text, um, Samson Agonistes, and it is around this kind of. Um, well, it's centred around Sweeney. There's an image of him in the bottom left of one of the canvases and uh, it's a work that started off as a single panel and then became a diptych and then finally a triptych. And I think it's one of the key breakout works in Gareth's career, an incredible pink palette and these very self-assured, large alien kind of figures in it and it's an astonishing painting. Um, and that sits within a room of other very large-scale ambitious works of Garris um, where he was using kind of an, the altarpiece sort of multiple panel um, uh, methodology to create these very, very large room-scale uh, works, um, very unlike other artists at the time. Um, so it's, it's a really it's just a sad story, but uh, again speaks, I think, to the ways in which Gareth's lived experience and the things that he's looking at and the people who touch him find their way into his works in strange and unusual ways. I read one review of his work that described him as much as an alchemist, as an artist, mm. because he's taking in all these ideas, images, references uh, f- from uh, filmic language, pop culture, the history of art, personal 
stories and kind of melding, literally transmuting them, transforming them into these kind of... uh, incredibly vibrant, chaotic, um, uh, complex works of art. Yeah, and I think chaos there is a really interesting way to describe, um, you know, what is happening in those picture planes in many cases. And, you know, there's a sense of kind of an inner world there, isn't there? But there are, you know, key figures, almost Guston-like caricature people. And, I mean, he paints in a very intuitive way. He never paints... um, knowing what is going to happen on the canvas and there's this sense of trying to never make an image that's too pretty or too resolved and so constantly going back and in his words sort of destroying part of it by painting over and so you do end up with these very complex layers and and it is my tendency to seek out those references that he's making and to try to communicate to an audience you know his biography some of the things that influence him the type, what a title might refer to. Sasha Grishin has just, in fact, written a fantastic um, review of the show on um, the website The Conversation, and in it he argues that actually that's all a bit of a furphy that you you can look for those narratives and and references in these works, but in fact you are left no closer to understanding them and perhaps no closer to appreciating them. Um, but uh, that and that's a really terrific um, review if anyone's interested. And uh, I was really to kind of one couple of sentences really encapsulate I think the the potential of this show or the the, the kind of um the power of this show and Sa- uh, Sasha wrote that Sansom has been doing this for 60 years and I've been viewing it for about 40 years and he has never failed to shock and surprise me I've always thought his work was good but I never realized it was this good you know, and it's that sense of seeing these things really en masse and, and many, many decades of practice that is really eye-opening, I think, with this show. The exhibition is Gareth Sansom Transformer. It's on at the National Gallery of Victoria at Federation Square uh, on the ground level and is on now until the 28th of January. So you've got heaps of time to go and see it, but why delay? Go today or this weekend. Uh uh, the NGV is open from 10am till 5pm daily and you can find out more information at www.ngv.vic.gov.au If you want to get some further insights into the exhibition uh, Pip Wallace, Curator of Contemporary Art is doing a, a Curator's Perspective Talk next Wednesday uh, sorry, next month I should say uh, the 25th of October um, and that's a free event at 2pm There's also a film screening of Psycho coming right. out as well uh, So, uh, which is something that... Uh, uh, the artist used to watch, taking a break from painting by going going and watching a classic horror film. Works for me. So the exhibition, as I said, Gareth Sansom, Transformer, on at the NGV at Federation Square. I've been talking with Simon Maidman, Senior Curator of Contemporary Art from the NGV. Simon, thanks for coming in. Thanks, Richard. Georgia King and Mark Storin. Welcome. Oh, thank you. Good Thanks morning. for having us. Morning. So, what brings two Perth performers over to Melbourne for Melbourne Fringe? Um, yeah, well, we um, we performed our show, the one by Jeffrey J. Fowler, at the Perth Fringe earlier this year, and we were really fortunate to win the Melbourne Tour Ready Award, um, which has um, afforded us the opportunity to come over and and present the work here at Melbourne Fringe, which we're very excited to be doing. 
I imagine for independent artists and for an independent show like the one, uh, touring from Perth to Melbourne would otherwise be a little challenging without that it kind of support. It is challenging. Yeah, absolutely. It's challenging um, even with the support, you know, like it, it's been really interesting. At, we're at home um, in Perth, we have like a, an audience already and a network of um, support. Um, so it's been interesting to come to Melbourne and just like see how people respond to the work without being in our kind of um, being familiar with us already. But it's been really heartening to see how, you know, a Melbourne audience has been responding to the work, um, yeah, even been, though they don't know us. It's been quite overwhelming, actually, and, yeah, really humbling. Like, really, yeah, it's been... The audiences have been great here, so, yeah, we feel really, really blessed. Now, the work is about a, a couple, him and her, mm. uh, and it's been described to me as a queer man's take on a heterosexual romance and relationship. It's theatre, but also with songs, but it's not a musical. That's right, yes. It's um, very much like we, we kind of like to think of it as a savage fever dream. It's sort of, um, it's it's him and her. It sort of swings between presentational style where him and her are, are addressing the, the audience in a sort of Patti Smith uh, kind of rock style, I guess. It's very, the music's very sort of, that underpins the show is um, really bluesy and kind of um, a bit swampy. Rocky. And, and we use a, a variety, or we cover a, a variety of songs of four in, in total, um, sort of like old country love songs and, 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 a, and, a, and a couple of others. And yeah, so it's, it's, it's a real sort of, um, yeah, interesting mix of styles. I was going to ask about the songs because I know that Jeffrey J. Fowler, who's written the piece and also directed it, yes. is a talented man, but I wasn't sure if he was also a songwriter to boot. If he was a triple threat, I was going to get... He but, has well, actually written a musical yeah. before. <laughs> he's got I know, like, what a jerk. He's one of those guys. Um, but he didn't write the, mu- write the music for this particular show. Mark does the kind of the score, if you like, that goes bet- underneath the, the direct address and the storytelling. But we have four songs that will be familiar to people. Yeah, and Jeff, I mean, he definitely, I mean, because he is so musical as well, um, he, he definitely um, weighed in, in, in a, on a lot of the kind of underscoring that I was uh, playing around with and creating as we went through the process. So, so you're creating a live score, so what he was chipping in to say, okay, it needs to be less dramatic here, more moody there. Very much, very much, yeah, which was great. And really, um, yeah, so it's, it's great to have, have, him, have him on board in all the capacities. Now, one of the things that I've heard about The One is that it tends to skewer romantic cliches about, uh, and given that it's a, a theatrical show with songs, you could expect the potential for sappy romance. I get the feeling this is the antidote to that. Um, Without giving uh, too much away. No, of course. Look, there, there are romantic elements. I don't think they're sappy. Um, and it does it does look at that kind of grim history of marriage and where it came from and... and um, you know, the different kinds of marriages through different cultures. Uh, we did a lot of research with Jeffrey. Jeffrey did tons of research and he brought us in a few times to look at, like, where marriages come from and, like, how it is in different cultures and different countries. So that's kind of um, throughout the story it, that comes up from time to time. Yeah, so not sappy. And what about the tone for audiences who are thinking, I might come and see this show? What kind of tone does it have? 
Look, I think there's um, it's it's such a journey. It really kind of it is quite ferocious, but there's it's quite funny as well. I think at times it's really poignant. Um, it, it is sad. I think it's just it's it's kind of like the complete journey of a relationship in some ways. Um, there's kind of an ambiguity, I guess, to the end and. I feel like it's the kind of piece that in the car on the way home, it, it would really promote a lot of discussion and, and, and potentially oppositional views, um, which I think is, is why I personally really enjoy that when I see a piece of theatre, just having that discussion with Georgia or, or a friend about, yeah, where do you think it ended up? And I think that's what's really interesting about this piece. So the fact that it's about a relationship from go to woe, that could be both spellings of woe. Um, <laughs> but the, as you said, there's an ambiguity there. Uh, talk to us about the style of writing, the, 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 given that, yes, there's music, but there is also then very much theatrical kind of dialogue throughout. Um, for people who haven't seen... Uh, uh, Jeffrey's, Jeffrey's work. work before, for example, if people, if audiences caught Fagstag at Melbourne Fringe a couple mm, of years ago, yeah. is it is it in a, an equivalent mode of kind of overlapping uh, monologues that eventually form dialogues, for example? It's, it's a bit different to Fagstag. We really, it's it's a bit more of a cleaner go between. Like we play the narrators, and they're very separate to the characters. So we go between this kind of like almost like watch a spoken word kind of like being at a rock gig kind of spoken word. Um, direct address and then we flip to become the characters and more like a domestic kind of scene where we um, demonstrate the relationship and, and the audience can really see us interacting. So, um, yeah, it's a little bit different to Fag's Sake. It doesn't kind of overlap in that way. It's a little bit more... Um, I'm intrigued by the fact that then you get to be both the characters and narrators as well. So kind of giving you what, which must be a gift for an actor then. It's to, really To have that fun. script to say, I want you to be more than just the one thing. Absolutely. It's it's amazing. Like I love swinging in and out of those two kind of um, devices. And, and you can, as the narrator, you, you can sort of sit back and sort of observe the character character and 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 remember potentially like there's a bit of a blur between the two and remembering you know what actually is happening and almost kind of give a little a nod and wink to the audience about like oh that was a bit of a that that didn't go as well as it should have but um and i think you know it it is classic jeffrey j fowler in that the the writing is white hot like it's 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 witty it's sharp it's it's sad sad it's It's just he's such a craftsman you know so yeah we're very lucky uh, to have had him come on board the production is the one it's on as part of melbourne fringe uh before i give a, the t- more details about it i just wanted to talk to to listeners about the the perth independent theater scene how vibrant is it melbourne likes to pride itself sometimes a little bit arrogantly about having we are the cultural capital yeah. of australia <laughs> <laughs> look at us admire us in our black and our coffee and our language <laughs> well it is very nice it's very yeah. we love it here. but having i've been over to perth every year for the last three years. I always mm. managed to catch a show at the Blue Room while oh, I'm yes. there. So the Blue Room Theatre is such a vibrant hub of independent theatre making. Um, we are lucky to have the Blue Room. Yeah. I feel like independent theatre in Perth um, does really well because of that, because of the Blue Room. You mm. know, like, I mean, don't you think? I just feel like, oh, wait, yeah. where would we be? It's hard I, to even yeah. know what we would do without that place. Absolutely. I think it's it's the kind of place that really nurtures um, independent artists in, in Perth. It gives you the opportunity to explore and try work. Um, we are absolutely very lucky to have such a... We're a bit a, spoiled. Yeah, we, we, we definitely um, are a bit spoiled. 
But I think, yeah, the independent scene in Perth, it's a really unique um, theatre-making scene. It's a great... It's a small community, so everybody's very supportive. Everyone's very um, happy to sort of pitch in and help and provide support and feedback and all kinds of things and audience. Um, so, yeah, I think it's... Something about being so far away as well, I yeah, think that kind of... The isolation. It, the isolation kind of makes it a little bit of a hotbed, yeah. perhaps. Over the years, I think, yeah, that's sort of... A lot of people talk about its unique branding as a result of being one of the most isolated capital cities mm. um, anywhere in the world. How does that then influence the work that is made there? One of the things I've heard, for example, is that uh, the people who want to be playwrights and directors often move away from Perth to mm. Melbourne or Sydney, so it means the artists that are left are often making more focused on devised work, for example. And I've also heard that um, one of the, 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 the drawback to living in Perth is that independent makers aren't making work of scale because they know if realistically if, if it has to have a life beyond Perth it has to be easily tourable which means a suitcase and and yes. kind of packed into the back of a of a car or something so how does that impact on the work that's made well, I think you've kind of summed it up. Yeah. We do we do a lot of devising like it's you know it's hard to know because we're making work there and sometimes it's hard to compare it to another city but we do uh, do a lot of devising rather than um, having but that's why I suppose Jeffrey's kind of unique in that way that he is a playwright who's based in Perth. Um, yeah, a lot of companies, independent companies, that's their that's their style is is devising, um, and that's also very true. A lot of the touring that we do is regionally, and a lot of the touring that we do is over to the eastern states. So. You know, two mics and a guitar is a pretty easy way to do it. Yeah, it's keeping it compact. But then you've got companies um, which Jeffrey's part of, like the Last, the Last Great, Great Hunt, Hunt, which are really challenging that model. And as you know, they've they've grown into a company that is taking seven or seven or so or more works. Um, nationally, internationally, that are starting to grow in scale as well. So that's really, um, I think, very encouraging for other independent Perth artists to see that model and really take inspiration from that. So it's, um, yeah, it's an exciting, exciting little, little hub. Is, yeah, is, and I think I feel like people Perth. are doing lots of different stuff. Like the yeah. work that we that Whiskey and Boots does that we do is very simple, straight up, stripped back, uncomplicated in terms of like set um, and and that kind of thing. But then there are companies like The Last Great Hunt who use technology a lot um, and they keep it uh, tourable, but within that kind of yeah, using using interesting media and that kind of thing. If you would like to check out The One, uh, which is uh, a Whiskey and Boots production on as part of the 2017 Melbourne Fringe, it's on now until the 30th of September at North Melbourne Town Hall on the corner of Queensbury Streets and Errol Streets in North Melbourne. Uh, and performance times. What are the performance times? It is Tuesday to Saturday, 6.45pm, Sundays, 5.45pm. What a civilised time. It means you can finish work, stroll <laughs> out to perfect. North Melbourne... <laughs> Grab a, a quick bite to eat and a drink, or just grab a drink, see the show, a and then go out for dinner afterwards. Dinner afterwards, Absolutely. where it's, you get yeah. it's a perfect show to see before <laughs> dinner because there is a lot to discuss, especially if you're on maybe a first date. Mm. Mm. So uh, a chance to see some Perth artists, a Perth theatre maker's work and a chance to see, uh, by all accounts, uh, an excellent show at the Fringe. It's called The One and uh, those dates again on until the 30th of September, North Melbourne Town Hall. You can book by going to melbournefringe.com.au. The Fringe is on now until the 1st of October. Georgia and Mark, thanks very much for joining us. Thank thanks you so much. So for much. Having us.
Jody Ferugia is the artistic director of the Flying Fruit Fly Circus, based up in Albury, Wodonga, and a national treasure. Welcome. <laughs> Thank you for having me. My very great pleasure. Junk is the latest show that the Fruities have created and which you've directed. Uh, it comes to Melbourne after successful seasons in Albury, in Sydney, and now it's on at Art Centre Melbourne. Um, tell us a bit about Junk. It's current modern-day kids but playing games inspired by games from the 40s and 50s? Yeah, so it's sort of based around the idea, I guess the creative question of in this day and age now, in 2017, do we overprotect our children? Are we, you know, denying them of taking risks and um, learning their own physical boundaries, I guess, or, or around um, sort of helicoptering parenting styles? Um, so the, the concept of the show is about a modern-day child who finds himself in a junkyard that's inhabited by children from the 1940s that teach him how to play and invent and uh, take risks inside um, nothing, using nothing but junk. Um, yeah, so the premise was, we, we, you know, we interviewed, uh, uh, we had eight local elderly, elderly citizens who grew up in um, Albury-Wodonga, that region. So it's about a re- sort of regional story, regional Australian story, um, and drew the stories out of them and the aesthetics out of them about what childhood was like for them in a regional town in the 40s. And then we recreated that basically. So it was a, it was a kind of a research residency project that the young artists did themselves and then we um, brought, it, brought it together through puppetry, circus and um, theatre and movement. Yeah. I really like the idea of uh, that kind of cross-generational storytelling, mm. that, to, to share stories, because yeah. realistically in, uh, in the contemporary age, kids and uh, the elderly almost never interact unless it's a kind of come and kiss grandma on the cheek kind of once a year thing. Yeah, it's been really beautiful and, and part of it for me is, is the director, there's been moments where we've brought those elders back in to see the making of the work at different stages. So it's there's been this... Go- and the, the young people in the cast have loved the relationship with the elders... Um, and this work's been in development for about three years now and out of the eight elders that we did originally work with, um, five of them have passed since um, so it fe- and we have three remaining. So it feels like a really timely moment of just capturing it before that generation leaves us. Yeah. yeah. Um, how many uh, young people are involved in making and performing junk and what age range yeah, are we talking about? Yeah, so 18 on tour at the moment between nine years old and 19 years old. But in the making of the work, we used pretty much probably about 80 young people inside our school. Uh, we have 80 full-time students. So we pretty much used all of them in the development of the work over the few years. Um, and yeah, the, the maximum we can really tour with is about 18, yeah. Bit of a handful. Yeah. <laughs> and then there's probably about 15 adults that, that then, um, you know, from technical team and, and creative team and um, just chaperones and things like that that have to come on the road to to deal with all of that. Yeah, and to yeah. ensure the kids' welfare. and yeah, yeah, all of that and their education and teachers. And, yeah, it's been great. Look, it's a beautiful thing touring with the fruit flies. It's an amazing little community that circus is, yeah. It's a fascinating model as well, given that, as you say, it's, it's a circus school, but it's also a school. So the kids are yeah. balancing kind of reading, writing and arithmetic with uh, backflips, somersaults, yeah. Chinese pole routines and every, everything yeah. in between. So we have our own academic school attached to our full-time program um, with a really great team of teachers teachers um yeah it's fantastic and you know it's got all its challenges good and good and bad but um um at the end of the day it it makes for a really tight you know group of young people that know each other really well I guess it's a family yeah and from that family uh fruities go out into circus companies around the world yeah they're all over the place (laughs) they are all look and some of them do and some of them go off to other other things but without a doubt it makes them a better human being I reckon um 
you know, the, the span generally is 10 years for the young person to be from eight years old to 19. Um, so it's sort of 10 years of informative times, yeah. The other thing I love about the fruit is the way, because the company has been up in Albury-Wodonga for so long, <laughs> it's um, it's kind of infiltrated out from its hub into the, the broader community as well. It seems like uh, half the people in Albury-Wodonga have been in or know somebody that has been through the fruit, uh, the, the fruit flies. Yeah, it's great. I mean, one of the things I'm really strong about is how to keep that program accessible to kids, um, you know, from all walks of life and um, and that's been something I've been really strong about because it means, you know, circus as an art form will be better off with a diverse a range of people engaged in that art and trained in that art form. So it, it's by no means an elite opportunity to be a fruit fly. It's based on your physical skill if you get in um, through the audition process and that's uh, all we focus on. And then we, we've got uh, a scholarship program, Noel Tovey Scholarship Program um, with Dear Noel, um, that allows... Um, if, if a family can't afford the fees, which are fairly modest anyway, um, we, we allow that to happen. So, yeah, even in this show now, there's actually four young people out of 18 that have been on that scholarship program that wouldn't be here without that. And I'm really proud of that because it means, yeah, it, you know, it's not about um, if you can afford it. It's about if you've got the skill and we, between Noel and the company, we make that happen. Yeah. For people who don't know Uncle Noel to- Tovey, mm-hmm. Australia's first male Indigenous uh, ballet dancer uh, and uh, being honoured with a, a Lifetime Achievement Aww. Award this Sunday. We're I... so proud of him and he's such a special part of our, our, um, our school. Yeah. Yeah. What for you is the, the most fascinating thing about circus? Why do you love it as an Aww. art form? Because you've come to it from a dance background. Yeah. Oh, I love it. I love it. Um... I love the collaboration. I love the amount of people it takes. I love the amount of technical um, uh, process that has to go through to make something. It's it's a total team sport, I guess, a team art. Um, and I also love the virtuosity and I love the, 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 the level of perfectionism that's required to create something, you know, and the, the amount of... Um, fierce, um, it's either patience, fierce patience or fierce attraction to pushing the physical limit. Yeah. Now, Junk is the current show that the the Flying Fruit Fly Circus uh, performing in Melbourne. It kicks off tomorrow. So it's on uh, 6pm tomorrow, the 22nd, and then on uh, Saturday it's on at 2pm and 6pm. And the 2pm performance on Saturday is a relaxed performance. Yes. Yeah. For people not familiar with the phrase relaxed performance, what does that mean? Um, it's an opportunity. The show, it's an opportunity to sort of um, present the show in a way that's supportive to any children or families with children with special needs. Um, so we just we just take out any of the kind of harsh stuff. We leave the house lights up a little bit, bring the volume down, and we have a kind of an open door policy that if children need to come and go, they can. Um, and that's been we've been doing that uh, with all of our seasons. We did it at the Opera House recently as well, and it's been fantastic to know that the work can reach and be accessible to families that otherwise might feel alien to the experience. And uh, for me, one of the really important things about these kind of performances is that um, they're, re- it's, they're relaxed in another way in that the traditional rules of theatre don't apply. So yeah. instead of sitting quietly in the dark, if a kid squeals or uh, uh, just is making involuntary noises in a part of their everyday life or as an expression of joy, they're not going to be shushed and the parents no, aren't going to be right. frowned at. It's, kind no. of, it's a, a welcome, inclusive environment. Yep, it's fantastic. Actually, we're really proud to be delivering that as part of our programs now. Yeah. Uh, the Flying Fruit Fly Circus is going to be turning 40 in a couple of years' time. <laughs> oh, my God, 
Yes, we're getting old. Plans already in place? Yeah, there are. There are. There's... um, you know, there's a celebration because it's a huge community of people that have been attached to the company and also an opportunity for us to showcase some things of the future, um, which we're really looking forward to. So, yeah, we've been talking about it for a while now uh, <laughs> and very excited. It feels like a real page turner for us. Um, certainly for me, it feels like, OK, this is a moment to work towards. And then there's after that, you know, what's going to happen after that. And, um, yeah, we're excited. So, yeah, there'll be quite a bit happening locally and we're hoping to, to get on the road as well and do a lot of engagement stuff throughout that time as well. So you'll be seeing more of us, I hope. <laughs> One of the things that fascinates me about that is uh, a, a youth company is getting old. So mm. how do you maintain youthful enthusiasm when a company is going to be 40 it's years old? It's a really good question because it is a company that comes with a lot of people who love it and are passionate about it but remember it for what it used to be in the old days, you know. So how do you, you know, and I think that's fantastic because, um, but it's also about, um, I think that's why I'm sort of seeing it as a page turner in some way of going, wow, we've got here, let's celebrate that, but let's also look to the future and allow it to be what it needs to be and how can we honour the kids that are here now and the kids to come. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Flying Fruit Fly Circus uh, present Junk at Art Centre Melbourne on the 22nd of the 23rd of September. You can book at artcentremelbourne.com.au or by calling 1300 182 183. It's recommended for ages 6 and up and, as we said, there's a relaxed performance on the Saturday afternoon at 2pm for anybody who wants to get along to that with their family. It sounds like it's going to be a fun show. been chatting with the Artistic Director of the Fruities, Jodie Ferrugia. Thank you for coming in. Pleasure. Thanks for having us. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.